Uh, we've been going through a series through the books of the Kings, First and Second Kings, and uh, we are entering into the second sort of half of the second book, which is Second Kings. We're in Second Kings chapter 15 this morning. And it seems as though, especially now, that the writer of the books of, of Second Kings here is going to write with a little bit more sort of urgency than perhaps he has written before. He's writing with a little bit more sense of finality. And it's interesting because reading these narratives, the books of the kings, has been an interesting sort of struggle, an interesting sort of endeavor, precisely because we know how the books of kings end. We know how they finish. We know what happens. Of course, exile and sort of ruin is facing both the nations of Judah and Israel. We kind of know that. That's not spoiling the story in any way. We are sort of seeing the, the way in which the Assyrians and the Babylonians further uh, put these nations of God under their thumb. And yet the intriguing part, at least for me, is even though we know how the story ends, how do they get there? And in fact, that's essentially the question that the historian is trying to answer. How did God's people get to this point? How did they get to this juncture where everything is disintegrated, where their whole fabric of what they believed perhaps was dismantled? We know the result, but what was the cause? Historians would like to sort of point you in some interesting directions, which might have some merit. They would point you to, to perhaps some uh, big moves of global politics or economics or something like that. But the main stress of the historian throughout all of these chapters that we've gone through, and the, even the chapters we're about to get to, his main point of all of this is that Israel's problem wasn't an economic problem, wasn't a political problem, it wasn't a social problem. Their fundamental issue with which now they are feeling the effects. The reason why they went down the drain, so to speak, was primarily a theological problem. They got God out of the center of their hearts. And we can trace it all the way back and that's essentially what he's been striving to do. He's striving to show these people of God that as soon as they veer away from the things of God, from the word of God, disaster follows. It's the only thing that can follow. And those, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the God's covenant people, they were the ones who were supposed to be a light and a blessing to the nations. That was the covenant that God had to give them from the very beginning, that they were supposed to be the ones to show the world the blessings of Yahweh. And yet, what have they become? They've become essentially a bastion of sin and strife and sedition, just like everyone around them. So here in this sort of era, as we're seeing uh, the very uh, fundamental unraveling, so to speak, of God's people, I think, especially here in this chapter, these 38 verses, we see, I would say, three characteristics which I would say define this era of Israelite history. Three characteristics which I want to go through this morning, which I think also point us to uh, ways in which we can see them as being true even in our own day. So first of all, number one, a lesson about conceit. 
A lesson about conceit. Here, at the very beginning, we're introduced, or I should say reintroduced, to the king of Judah named Azariah. As it says there in verse 1. In the twenty and seventh year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, began Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, to reign. And he was 16 years old when he began to reign. We were first introduced to him all the way back in chapter 14, actually, when his daddy, Amaziah, did some really embarrassing things for the kingdom of Judah, trying to pick a fight with King Jeroboam and all those sorts of things. And because of all the embarrassment that he brought on to his kingdom, actually his own courtesans, we might say, hatched a plot to replace him with his son. So Amaziah is out of the picture. He's gone. Now his son, Azariah, is king of Judah. And he's here. And it was actually a pretty good move, I guess. As it says, he reigned for 52 years. Pretty good political move, I would say. This is the second longest reign in all of the history of the nation of Judah. So a good good move, I would say. Azariah. Or as you might see, if you read Chronicles, he's also called Uzziah. Same guy, different name. If you read about him, he brings a lot of stability to the throne of Judah. He ushers in this era of spiritual success, social success. As it says here in our text, that he did, verse number three, that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And in fact, though, the chronicler is even more detailed for us. Go with me. Keep your thumb there, but also keep your thumb in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, which is the parallel chapter which talks about Azariah. Because he gives us a little bit fuller of a picture of perhaps how we ought to judge this king. He was a very productive king, very prosperous. He was successful in battle. Notice what it says about him in verse 4 of 2 Chronicles 26. And he, that is Uzziah, a.k.a. Azariah, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah did. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding in the visions of God and was, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. And he went forth and warred against the Philistines and break down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod and built cities about Ashdod and among the Philistines. You can sense what the chronicler is here trying to do. He's trying to convey this particular message that here, as long as he's following the Lord, as it says there, God made him to prosper. He's prospering in terms of military, in terms of finances. He's bringing great economic success and triumph to Judah. And he achieves fame throughout all the lands. His name was being spread far and wide as this very successful, prosperous king. But the chronicler is very, uh, very pointed, I should say, about who is giving him this success. Look at verse number 7. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians that dwelt in Gerbal. And the Mahumanims and the Ammonites gave gifts to Uzziah and his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt for he strengthened himself exceedingly. His name is spreading. People are bringing him tribute. His economy is booming. His name as a king is being exalted. 
Go jump down to verse number 15, where it says, And he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. And his name spread afar abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. He is engineering. He is doing mighty things in terms of, of, um, uh, of building and engineering and politics and all these different spheres. He is successful. God had made him strong, though. See, the true nature of this whole uh, little vignette that we see here about who is doing this, God is doing this through Azariah. It is God who is making him strong. Again, as it says in verse 5, God made him to prosper. As long as he was seeking the Lord, he was prospering. And I think that is essentially, in a nutshell, sort of the historical recipe, so to speak, if we want to make sense of the kings of Israel and Judah. So long as they were devoting themselves to the things of the Lord, to the things of Yahweh, Yahweh would make them prosper. That's how they ought to be judged, these kings. And so it ought to come as no surprise then, as soon as Azariah got his eyes a little bit off of who Yahweh was, of who was actually doing these things in and through him, that his success dwindles. Back in 2 Kings, the historian alludes to this, right where he says in verse 4, that, or in verse 3, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. In verse 4, save the high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burned incense on still on the high places. This is sort of the thing that lets us know that even though he's doing some things right, there's still some things he's missing. There's still some ways in which he is off. Go back to Second Chronicles, though, because the Chronicler gives us a little bit better of a picture of this. Of what exactly happens to this king, Azariah. He's reigning for 52 years. He is achieving much for the people of God. And yet, he's overcome by conceit. Look at verse 15 again of Second Chronicles 26. He's making all these engines, as it says, for he is marvelously helped till he was strong. And then notice immediately the verse right after. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. It's the old, old lion, we might say, of pride that comes and engulfs his heart. That he's made strong, and yet in his strength, he became, became so conceited and thought that he was the one that was achieving all of this strength and all of this might and all of this glory. And how do we know? Look at, again, continuing in verse 16. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And essentially, in the scene that follows, as it goes on to describe, that essentially Azariah, because he was such a fine king, because he was such a fine and upstanding king and ruler of the people, he thought, what's stopping me from being a priest too? What's, what's, what's hindering me from being successful there? I've been successful in every other area. What's stopping me from burning incense in the temple of the Lord? Well, the Lord's word, that's what was stopping him. <laughs> he is violating exactly what the Lord had laid down according to his law, according to his words of the proper, we could say, procedure of who is supposed to burn incense in the temple. Only those whom the Lord appointed and called were permitted 
in that place. And yet here, Azariah, this king, was brazenly ignoring that word of the Lord. And yet we might also say he's repeating the era or the error of Aaron's sons. You don't have to go there, but in Leviticus chapter 10, it talks about that moment in which Aaron's son, Nad, uh, sons Nadab and Abihu go into the temple and it says that they offer strange fire. They weren't authorized, we could say appointed in that particular moment to offer incense in the same exact way, by the way, that Azariah is here. And what does God do to Aaron's sons? He engulfs them in flames right on the spot. He judges them severely for the ways in which they have misstepped, and I would even say how they have tried to subvert the word of the Lord. And here this king is doing the same thing. Usurping God's authority, attempting to replace him, attempting to act as both priest and king. Luckily for Azariah, in our text, God was in a little bit more of a gracious mood than he was in Leviticus 10. Because instead of evaporating them on the spot, he just condemns him with leprosy for the rest of his life. (laughs) Back in 2 Kings chapter 5, it says that. And the Lord smote the king so that he was a leper unto the day of his death and dwelt in a several house, which is essentially quarantine. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the house judging the people of the land. It's... An interesting, and I would even say a stunning end to this, this king, this monarch, this great ruler of the people of Judah. Who has done great things, accomplished great triumphs and successes for God's chosen people. Yet here he is, he lives out his twilight years basically in isolation. Away from the kingdom, away from the throne, away from having any sense of authority or influence on the very people and the very kingdom that he had come to establish. And I think the historian wants us to be startled by that. By the conceit that overcame this king. To where now he's frittering away his twilight years in quarantine in this living death of leprosy. Like many kings before him, Azariah was bested by pride. His own hubris came and overcame him. He thought excessively of himself. He was a conceited man who became, came to believe that his accomplishments were because of him. And the more success he experienced, the more he began to believe that he was responsible for those successes. Look at what I've done. Look at the nation that I have made. Look at the land that I have brought into the kingdom. Look at the wealth that I have established for my citizens. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair, we might hear him say. His success was his undoing. And it's ironic because his success was a direct result of his faithfulness and his surrender and his obedience to the Lord God himself. And yet... And undid him. In many ways I would say that Azariah's conceit is somewhat easy to see. It's pretty black and white in the text of scripture. How yes he became to believe much of himself. That when he was strong his heart lifted up to his destruction. The question for myself and I'll relay it to you even here this morning is. Are we as able to see that conceit in our own hearts and lives? 
If you were to pause and, and you were to stop and take, take stock of your life, do an inventory on where you are, would you come away and say, that's, that's because of me? That's because of something that I did. This little investment here, look at what it got me. Look at where I am. Look at the great successes that I've been able to enjoy because of something that I did. My friends, there's the language of conceit. This is the language of one who does not know or does not see or does not recognize that every single blessing that you and I here enjoy this morning and throughout our lives is a blessing straight from the heart of grace of God. It comes from him. It comes out of his benevolence. It comes because he is merciful. As soon, I would say, as we begin to lift ourselves up like Azariah, we lift ourselves up to destruction. As it says there in 2 Chronicles 26 again, when he was strong, his heart lifted up to his destruction. It's that old proverb ringing true once more. That pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke much about that in terms of pride and what it can do to us. And I think, at least if I'm just being honest, God is obviously trying to say something about that. At least maybe perhaps just to me. I don't know. There's a message of humility, of course, riddled throughout the pages of Scripture. That we who think we are so accomplished and mighty and strong and forceful, we are nothing in the eyes of God. Our efforts... To control our own lives, let alone to control the world, are puny little exertions of puny little people. (laughs) I think God wants us to remind us of that. That we who are conceited, we are not above the king of all kings. He's the one who makes us to prosper. A lesson about conceit. Secondly, as we go into the bulk of chapter 15 of 2 Kings, a lesson about chaos. The historian does something a little bit unprecedented here as he begins from verse number 8 down through verse 31 to just race through, almost like on fast-forward speed, as you, if you remember VHSs. If you plug them in, you can fast-forward them. You can see the whole movie fast-forwarded really fast. That's what he's basically doing here, going through all of these years of history, going through five different kings of Israel and showing how all of them were basically bested by themselves. Indeed, that's... Kind of what he's trying to bring to bear, I think, through this text is that they were all defeated through, we could say, self-inflicted wounds and the chaos that they incited. In fact, studying this era of history here as, as the historian moves from Judah and shifts focus again now to the nation of Israel proper... He shows us how all of these vile kings, these these reprehensible monarchs, we might say, they are ones who embrace chaos over and over and over again. As they're edging towards ruin, they're also embracing a little bit tighter the chaos of the day. And of course, Israel doesn't recognize it as chaos. They don't see it as disorder. No one usually does when they've bought into it. But it's hard to come up, I think, with a different word to encapsulate this era of darkness other than that word is chaos all the way down. I think you'll see that in a moment. 
In verse number 8 of our text in 2 Kings 15, we're told about this king, Zechariah, who took over for his daddy, Jeroboam II. As it says there, in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, did Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reign over Israel and Samaria, and notice, six months. There was a lot riding on Zechariah's reign. He's following his dad, Jeroboam II, who was, at the time, perhaps the greatest king in Israel in terms of worldly success. The longest ruling monarch up to that point was now followed by his son, who didn't even make it a full year. He was outed after only six months by a man named Shalom. Look at verse number nine, or excuse me, verse number 10. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and smote him before the people and slew him and reigned in his stead. He stakes his claim as he does there. Killing the king before all the people, as it says, as he smote him before this peop, before the people, this public display of might and terror and power. And here, this constitutes, we could say, a very significant shift for the people of Israel, as Zechariah was the very last of the kings of the line of Jehu. If you remember, all the way back in chapter 10, Jehu was the judge who uh, came upon the house of Ahab and inflicted great and violent and vicious judgment. Yet the Lord, because uh, he did what was right according to the words of the Lord, he promised Jehu that, yes, even your sons unto the fourth generation will sit on the throne. And that is now finished right here with Zechariah. Notice, the historian brings that to bear. In verse number 12, this was the word of the Lord which he spake unto Jehu, saying, Thy sons shall sit on the throne of Israel unto the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. That's exactly what happened. Jehu had four sons. They all sat on the throne. And now that reign is over. And now we could basically say the throne is up for grabs. In verses 13 through 15, Shalom comes to the throne. And he reigns, quote unquote, for a mere 30 days. Verse 13, And Shalom the son of Jabesh began to reign in the nine and thirtieth year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month. <laughs> Historians kind of being ironic there. A full month he reigns, not really getting able to, being able to do pretty much anything, before he too is bested by a group of conspirators. For Manaheim, it says in verse 14, the son of Gadi went up from Terzah and came to Samaria and smote Shalom, the son of Jabesh in Samaria, and slew him and reigned in his stead. And I think the historian wants us to note that, wants us to catch the irony here of this conspirator being outdone by another conspirator. <laughs> the leader of this lady's conspiracy is this guy named Menahim, who it turns out is one of the cruelest kings in all of the annals of Israelite history. Verses 16 down through 21 record his reign, his time on the throne, which is, we could describe as somewhat monstrous. And it begins with how he asserts his dominance and how he asserts his rule and reign here in Israel. Notice verse 16. Then Menahim smote Tibsha and all that were therein and the coast thereof from Terza because they opened not to him. Therefore he smote it and all the women therein that were with child he ripped up. Everyone who refused to bow the knee and recognize that he is the new king, he was ripping to shreds, even those who were with child. Shows you his 
hard shows you his character. And I think this ghastly detail isn't here to just shock us and repulse us and make us gag. I think the historian wants to do something very specific. I think he's aiming to show just how far Israel has declined. Chopping up the bodies of an expectant mother sounds something like Assyria would do. Something Babylon would do, but not Israel. Not the people of God. They have Yahweh. They have a book called Torah. They have the law. They have liturgies. They have rules. Yet here is Israel mimicking the dreadful displays of brutality and power that their neighboring nations were more famous for. You can see the decline that here Israel is evidencing. They are far away from where God had wanted them to be. They had disregarded the Lord. They disdained the words of the Lord. And now they were beginning to carry themselves as those who had no God at all. Chaos. Instead of blessing nations, they were being infected and affected by them. So much so that now they are acting like them. They are carrying themselves like good old-fashioned Assyrians. Brutality included. And this is further, I think, evidence and brought to bear. Where to hear the historian details this sort of deal with the devil that Menahem makes with the king of Assyria himself. In verse number 19... We are introduced to the king of Assyria. It says in Pool, the king of Assyria came against the land. His Assyrian name is Tilglath Pileser. You can read about him in verse number 29. It's the same guy. And it's interesting because this is the first outright reference to Assyria by the historian here in this book. Even though Assyria, as a world power, has very much been active on the world scene. They've sort of been hovering over Israel for a long time as sort of this threat. This looming, menacing threat hovering, hovering over that nation. And Assyria is sort of the embodiment of everything that is opposed to Yahweh. They are those who have no interest in the things of God. So it's egregious. Scandalous that the king of Israel, the king of God's people, is here in this text, shaking the hand of the Assyrian king. As it says again in verse number 19, And Pool, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pool a thousand talents of silver, that his hand might be with him to confirm the kingdom in his hand. And Menahem exacted the money of Israel, even all of the mighty men of wealth, of each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and stayed not there in the land. So he buys his way into the good graces of the menacing king of Assyria, Pool. He's buying his way to the throne, so to speak, all in this pathetic effort to fortify his ability to sit on the throne. And to anyone around, and to anyone sort of looking at history, this would be like a big beaming, flashing red warning light. Something's wrong. You're shaking hands with the Assyrians. That's bad. Anyone in history would look at this and be like... Something's going on. <laughs> Something's not right with the people of God. It's a warning light that we could estimate you could see from the moon. <laughs> and Amos calls them out on that. Amos, the prophet, he calls them out on this very thing in his prophecy. 
You don't have to turn. I'm going to read a couple of lines from his prophecy. Amos chapter 4 verse 8 says this. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I've smitten you with blasting and mildew in your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palmer worm devoured them and ye have not returned unto me. I've sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses. And I've made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet ye have not returned unto me. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet ye have not returned unto me. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. And because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. That's not a, hey, come and see me. That's a threatening sort of prophecy that ought to sound, prepare to meet your maker. I've, I've tried to get your attention through this, that, and the other. I've sent you this famine. I've sent you this disease. I've sent you this disaster. I've sent you this atrocity, this crisis. And yet what is the overriding refrain of Amos? You have not returned. You've not returned to the Lord. You've not returned to see that Yahweh is the only one who can right this ship, this nation that's going off the rails. And here with this sort of shaking of the hands of the king of Assyria, that's essentially what Israel is agreeing to do. We are prepared to meet our maker. Only they won't like what they find. Because instead of Yahweh, they find they have shaken hands with the devil. They've shaken hands with Assyria who, yes, in the next few moments, overwhelms and overtakes all of the nation of Israel. It's chaos. Verses 23 through 26, back in our text, they detail the reign of Pekah, who despite ruling for 20 years, he too ends up on the scrap heap of history after yet another conspiracy. And yet, here we go. Or, excuse me, that was Pekahiah, excuse me, in verses 23 through 26. In verses 27 through 31, that's Pekah, who, yes, also was conspired against. In these last couple sections, we have two kings, again, who were conspired against and overthrown. Pekahiah in verses 23 through 26, and Pekah in verses 27 through 31. And it's almost, it's almost monotonous, isn't it? Conspiracy after conspiracy, seeing reign after reign of these kings of Israel just go up in smoke, go up in ashes. And essentially, that's what the throne of Israel is sitting on here at this point. They're sitting on a heap of ash, they're sitting on chaos. But did you notice, if you were reading ahead, perhaps you did, did you notice what's consistent throughout all of this chaos? Look at verse number eight. I just want you to notice this. Watch. In the 30th, 8th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Look at verse 13. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the ninth, or excuse me, not verse 13. Look at verse 18. 
this is talking about Menahem. Menahem did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. And look at verse 28. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. It's monotonous. The sin has been there from the very beginning of when Israel and Judah were fractured nations. 200 years later, 200 years later, and the sins of Jeroboam are still defining the people of God. Like a slow drip of poison that's being leaked into the bloodstream of God's people. These sins were defining a whole generation. Generation after generation of God's people. Wreaking havoc on them. And you can see very clearly I think. As the historian is drawing our attention to what is leading to the decline of God's people. It's that deviation from God's word. It seems minor here. It seems small in the moment. Jeroboam back all the way in 1 Kings 12. We won't rehash that. It seems small. He's just making two idols in Bethel and Dan. He's just allowing people to worship a little bit better. He was couching it under orthodoxy. And what do we find? What started out as a small divergence leads to very drastic different destinations. That small compromise left the people of God in ruin. I, I can't help but think about how applicable and how parallel this chaos is to our own day. I think we are very much living in a world that is chaotic, don't you think? I think there's a verse, you don't have to go there, but I'll read it to you. There's a verse in Isaiah that I think perfectly captures where we are in the current state of things in, the, in 2022. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. The prophet says. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. And prudent in their own sight. It's chaos. Good is being called evil. And evil is being called good. <laughs> it's chaos. When we who advocate to save the lives of unborn babies are scolded for not caring about the health of women. That's chaos. Praise be to God what the Supreme Court recently ratified. Doesn't mean that the pro-life movement is over by far from that. We praise God for the ruling and we will continue. I would say, maybe this is kind of off script, uh, but as a church we're going to continue to support All of those who are fighting for the lives of unborn babies. But it's chaos when we who are doing so are being scolded because we don't care about women's rights or something. It's chaos when the entire fabric of society can sort of kind of be upended and unraveled because we have the audacity to call a baby who was born a male a man. It's, It's chaos. And it's not biological chaos. Even though a fifth grader has a better sense of biology than many in our Supreme Court. It's not biological chaos. It's theological. Just like the historian was striving to show the people of Israel. Their primary issue and problem wasn't societal. It wasn't political. It was theological. 
What else can result but dogged rebellion when God and his word is totally excised from every corner of our lives? Chaos can only ensue. You're seeing the fruits of that here in this chapter in 2 Kings 15. It's the fruits of chaos that were planted well before that. And I would say even now in our day we're seeing the fruits of chaos still being brought to bear upon us. So what do we do? What do we do in this era of chaos and conceit? That brings me lastly to the last lesson in our text, a lesson about circumspection. What's the antidote? What's the countermeasure to all of this conceit and chaos that we see swirling around us? I think the account at the end of 2 Kings 15 gives us the answer. It tells us about Azariah's son, Azariah the leper. His son was named Jotham, who took over after his daddy got severely ill. And he's a mostly good king, as it talks about here in verses 32 through 38. He's mostly good, somewhat of a modest king who does a lot of good. He he builds the temple of God. He brings concern for the words of God to to the ways of Yahweh. He left the high places up, as it tells us, but he's a pretty good king. The chronicler, though, helps us a little bit. Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 27. I want you to notice. Notice how he describes Jotham. Here in 2 Chronicles 27, he gets an entire chapter. And it says in verse 2 of 2 Chronicles 27 that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah, a.k.a. Azariah, did. Howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord. He didn't go where he shouldn't go. <laughs> and the people did yet corruptly. They were still headstrong and stubborn in their sin. He built the high gate of the house of the Lord. And on the wall of Ophel he built much. Moreover he built cities in the mountains of Judah. And in the forest he built castles and towers. He fought also with the king of the Ammonites. And prevailed against them and the children of Ammon. He gave gave them the same year a hundred talents of silver. And ten thousand measures of wheat. And ten thousand of barley. So much did the children of Ammon pay unto him, both the second year and the third. So Jotham became mighty. Why? Because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. That is sort of the salient point out of which we ought to see the wisdom of Jotham. His wisdom is that he prepared his ways before the Lord. Prepared means what you think. Firm, stable, established, in opposition to all of the chaos that is swirling around him. What do we find Jotham doing? Preparing his ways, well ordering his life because of who is on the throne. He's living opposite to how the world would tell him to live. Counter to what the sort of embraced logic of the day is. He's preparing his ways before the Lord. He's walking circumspectly. Why? Because he knows that there is a true and a better king who sits on the throne of glory to whom he answers. Go with me, actually. I want you to see this because this is cool. At least I think it's cool. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is a very significant chapter to bring home this point. 
You might know it as that great passage where the prophet Isaiah talks about how he is a man who is undone. He, and he needs coal to uh, come upon his lips and purify him and all that stuff. But notice how he begins this prophecy that we love to read. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. The same Uzziah that we've been talking about. Azariah. The one who died from leprosy after living out his last remaining days in quarantine. Notice, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw also who? The Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and above it stood seraphims. Each one had six wings, and twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. I have no doubt that this is the exact prophecy that was spoken into the ears of Jotham. After his dad died, Isaiah gave him this prophecy of this king sitting on the throne, encouraging him to walk circumspectly, to, yes, prepare his ways before the Lord. How do you live in a world that's going off the rails? How do you resist the chaos and conceit of our day? I would say it's simply that, by walking, walking circumspectly before the Lord of hosts. By living faithfully as though there is a real king on a real throne of heaven who notices and watches over every single one of our deeds and days because there is. That's what the whole mission has been about, that king of glory that Isaiah saw. He entered our world of conceit and chaos through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He entered that world and he remakes it. He redeems it by the blood of his cross. He sacrifices everything, even his own life, in order to raise up, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, the children of the light and the children of the day, so that we too, yes, we may be with him and walk with him alongside of him, may be able to withstand this gathering darkness, even in our own day. For you, church, that's our express calling. That we who believe, we who are in Christ, we who are under the blood, our calling is to bring glory to God by walking circumspectly, by walking faithfully, according to his word. That might seem odd. It seems like it should be more complicated than that. But when the world around you has embraced the chaos of our day, the most revolutionary thing you can do is to walk attentively under the eye of the Lord. That seems revolutionary. What does it look like to walk in circumspectly? It looks like just going to church. It looks like raising your kids to love church. It looks like disciplining your kids. It looks like reading the scriptures before you're reading Facebook or Fox News. It's simple ways in which we're showing, displaying, evidencing to those around us in big yet small ways who is actually king, who is actually enthroned. Jotham was doing just that. No, he wasn't perfect. 
But he was showing us how circumspection can lead to a life of faithfulness. How a life of circumspection, how a life of preparing your ways before the Lord can be, yes, the way in which we resist the storm of chaos and conceit. You can know for sure that these words of God are true. They are true above all other words. The chaos and conceit of our day will not win. It seems great in the moment, right? Roe has been overturned. I'm not a prognosticator. I'm not saying that the church has won. (laughs) Who knows what the next 50 years holds. But the good thing is, the chaos and conceit, no matter what occurs in the next election cycle, in the next decade of this country, of this world at large, you know what's true? God's words always come to pass. Back in 2 Kings 15, I just want to draw your attention to that point. It's so small, we could just skip over it. We could just gloss over it and be like, okay, let's go on with our day. But it says in verse 12, that this was the word of the Lord which he spake unto Jehu. And so it came to pass. And so it was. That's all of God's words, my friends. Every single word that God has spoken is just like that. And so it came to pass. And so it was. And so it shall be. That is what we cling to as those who are living in this day and age. When truth is being fought against. When evil is being called good and good evil and so on and so forth. What do we cling to? Not our wisdom. Not our wit, not our might, not our salient ability to predict the future, not our ways, not what seems right to us. The only thing we cling to are the words of the Father which always come to pass. This is what allows us to be strong. And as Peter says, to be strong and sober-minded, hoping to the end. Because God's words are true. And so will they always be. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in a word of prayer.